I'm Cody Commerce, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. The month before I began my PhD in October 2019, I sat down with an idea. The concept was to reach out to people I admired, mostly academics and authors, and ask them about the decisions they made when they were in my position. What did they do when they were graduate students that set them up for success later on? Sure, I wanted to know about their success in some sort of career prestige sense, but I also wanted to understand how they thought about what it means to make a substantive contribution to their field, whatever that may have looked like for them. I envisioned it as a podcast, which I called Cognitive Revolution. I produced about 90 episodes of Cognitive Revolution. Toward the end, I began to feel like I'd learned what I wanted to from that line of questioning. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do with a podcast that represented the dimension of growth I wanted to pursue in my next phase, but eventually I came up with Meaning Lab, a cognitive science perspective on the mechanisms of meaning in work, life, and relationships. I've done about 10 Meaning Lab episodes now. I feel like I'm starting to get the hang of it. But to mark my 100th podcast episode, I wanted to do a retrospective on what I learned interviewing scientists about the personal side of their intellectual journey, as I framed the tagline of the show. I got to talk to so many of my heroes. I got to talk to people who were great scientists, but not well known outside of their immediate discipline. I got to talk to people who were both accomplished scholars and well known to a broader audience. I tried to talk to different people from different backgrounds and to explore stories told by everyone from established tenured professors who came from academic families to first-gen college students from an array of backgrounds who more or less stumbled into research and found they were really good at it. People were incredibly generous with their time, and I'm honored to have had the pleasure to talk with them and learn from their experience. Overall, what stands out to me is that there's no one path to success, not in academia, not in writing, not in making a living from ideas, not in, as far as I can tell, any aspect of life. For everyone I talked to who said doing X worked for them, there was another person who said they got to where they are by doing not X. Sure, there were trends and consistencies, and I try to get at some of them in the lessons below. But the overarching point is that you have to figure out what works for you. You can't take a strategy from a successful person you look up to and apply it blindly. You are a unique individual with your own strengths and weaknesses. Your success as a scholar depends, in large part, on learning to use them to your advantage. Another point was how just about every single person I talked to, especially the big-name scholars who seemed to have everything all figured out, admitted to feelings of uncertainty early on in their career. The vast, vast majority went through some patch of their journey where they just weren't sure if they were going to make it. But they stuck with it, and eventually they got to the other side. Personally, I identify with these kinds of doubts more than I do the concept of imposter syndrome. To be honest, I don't really care if I belong right now, right here in this room. Maybe I do, maybe I don't, whatever. I'm more concerned about whether what I'm doing is going to end up being worthwhile in the long run. Am I continuing to grow and get better? I can survive being bad at something now if I know I'll be good at it later on. It meant a lot to know that when I'm feeling that burden of doubt, pretty much everyone I look up to felt some version of it when they were in my shoes. Thanks to everyone who took the time to come on my show. I learned something from each one of you. What follows are some of my favorite clips from scientists I talked to. This includes segments from some of my favorite conversations in general, 
mostly with people who were authors more than scientists. And instead of short, snappy sound bites, I opted for longer clips, so you could hear a bit more of the context and story behind the lesson. I hope you find something in here to help you on your own journey, whatever that may look like. If you're anything like me, I think you will. If you enjoy this show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. And as always, you can find the entire feed of my work on my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Rating and subscribing are the best way to support this work. Thanks for listening, and without any further ado, here are my 12 lessons from asking 90-plus scientists about the personal side of their intellectual journey. Number 12. There's no one right way to be productive. Do what works for you. You've probably heard of psychologist and author Paul Bloom. For most of his career, he was a professor at Yale. Now he's based at Toronto. He's the author of seven books, including Against Empathy and How Pleasure Works. He's a frequent guest on the Sam Harris podcast. His online course on Intro to Psych has more than a million students. He is, in other words, prolific. And as it turns out, he accomplishes all this via a productivity routine that is, well, (laughs) I'll let you judge for yourself whether it's strange or magnificent. Paul's overarching productivity advice is to find what works for you. And evidently, what works for him is this nigh-pathological six-minute productivity regimen. So I'm interested in that first sort of hour that you're talking about where you give your first fruits of the day to, to writing. What are your... Do you have goals on, you know, I need one to get X amount of words done, uh, or is it purely just putting in the time for it? <laughs> You're getting into my favorite, one of my favorite topics, uh, productivity <laughs> porn. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's life hacker, and this is where I'm asked. This is how I work. Yeah. Um, so so I, I've long been a believer. Um, I've, I've read Cal Newport's work on deep work, and, um, but I've long been a believer that for each of us, there's sort of a time when we're at our best for sustained, difficult work. And for me, like most people, it's the morning. Um, so I couldn't do interesting work to save my life at three in the afternoon. It's, it's the mornings are best for me, and then um, sometimes the evenings. Sometimes, you know, around nine o'clock, I get a second wind. Yeah. And apparently there's some research. Daniel Pink has a book called When, suggesting that for many people, this is the way it goes. Our mornings are our best time for sustained, difficult work. So my worst morning would be taking my precious time and blowing it on email or Twitter or something like that. My best morning... Which you've never done before, I'm sure. Never, 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 never wasted enormous (laughs) amounts of time on on social media. Um, So I I try, on my perfect day, what I do is I try to spend an hour, set a clock to an hour on working. And I don't have a word word count. Um, I just work for an hour. I just, I, I, um, I have a sort of problem with focus so what I'll do is I'll, I'll maybe I'll have a word processing file or you know Scrivener file of my book and I'll just bounce back and forth between different chapters working 10 minutes here 10 minutes there you know trying to work on an argument or trying to think through something really so you'll spend, you'll spend 10 minutes working on something and just you know uh, do, what, do what you can there that burst comes to you and then you go on to the next one yes in fact it's sometimes worse than that when I when I'm done my hour or sometimes instead of it, honestly. I have a timer on my computer, um, and it's a six-minute timer. And so I, I hit And I, look, I want to tell you this, and people I love have told me this is insane. This is not... I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. But for some people, it might work. So 
I have a piece of paper on my side and a six-minute timer. And I say, go. And I work six minutes on my book. Then the timer dings and I stop. could be mid-sentence. And then I work on a reference letter for six minutes. And then it goes ding again. And I'm, uh, I'm an editor of a journal, so I work on a paper to, to, to uh, send to reviewers for six minutes. Then I treat myself to six minutes of Twitter or six minutes of email. Maybe it goes ding again, and I do the dishes. And then it goes ding again, and then I'm you know, working on, on a reference letter. Well, wait, okay, and so then, what, what's the point? What, what does this get you? How does this work for gets, you? What it gets me is I don't get worn out. Yeah. I, get, I get constantly stimulated. I, I could work on... You could do anything in the world, no matter how difficult, if you know you just have to do it for six minutes. So did, what does that uh, sort of motivational, you know... Uh, and focus aspect of it outweigh the switching costs? Or are there no switching costs because you're sort of just bada-bing, bada-boom sort of, you know, carousel deal? It's a strange gift, but I don't have any switching costs. Yeah. I think, I think switching costs are kind of overblown. You read this stuff, you know, I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've read people say, oh, every time you stop to check an email, it takes you 10 minutes to recover and everything. It's just made-up facts, <laughs> you know. You know, so, so, again, your mileage may vary. Some people need an hour. They can't work for less than an hour on a sustained project. I've actually known people who can't work for less than a day. Like, they need, if they're going to work on a book or a paper, they need to carve out a day to do it, to get their heads together, to work into it and everything. And I've never been like that. You know, I could, I could you know, be sitting on a, on a streetcar and then pop up my laptop and get some writing in. Number 11. Sometimes your biggest setbacks become your most significant accomplishments. Chantal Pratt is a professor of psychology at the University of Washington. She recently published a book detailing her work on individual differences in the brain called The Neuroscience of You. It's appropriate that she studies individual differences because she is herself a unique person with a unique set of experiences. In particular, she had an unplanned pregnancy during grad school. But instead of letting it take her off course she was able to turn it into her greatest advantage. The setup for this story is that she'd just been offered a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. She was teaching in California at the time, and it was a bigger opportunity than she'd ever dreamed she would have. She needed buy-in from her daughter before she made the decision. You know, I sat across the table with my nine-year-old and said, like, I got this job, and it's in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Neither one of us have ever been there and we don't know anyone. What do you think about this? And she was just like, mom, if it's your dream, like, let's do it. And I think that either one of those things, you know, gives me the goosebumps right now. She's a good kid, but, um, either one of those things having been different and I would be TA, I would be teaching at a junior college right now or something like that. And that's crazy. I do want to talk about uh, how having an unexpected pregnancy made things more difficult. But I would first like to know about, is there any, any aspect of that experience that, that made you sharper actually made uh, you have sort of a, uh, you know, an edge? You know, I'm thinking of, I read in uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg autobiography that she yeah. said having a kid during law school made her have to be an order of magnitude more focused than everyone else because she just had more shit to do. And yeah. uh, so she had to be on top of her game in a way that her peers who were still sort of in the, in the throes of adolescence didn't have. And, you know, one thing that uh, I'd like to suggest based off that last story is that it sounds like you had a, a best friend 
uh, attached to your to hip in a sense. Uh, not only you could experiment on, but would support you in in your uh, you know whatever you, you needed to go do. So I'm interested. What, what, how did how did how did that work out for you? Man, I'm so glad you brought up uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg because. I watched the uh, what the notorious RBG is that the documentary, yeah. and the thing that really stuck out for me was she was talking about like her time at Harvard and exactly when she was talking about her daughter she didn't say she said like I had this secret weapon or this like great benefit like the way she mentioned it was that it was a a plus and that's absolutely how I feel and I just like resonated with that so much. Um, the guy who I probably had the most in common with in graduate school was in the army doing grad school as an ROTC. And it was really, I think, um, both the thing that it make the fact that it makes you hyper-focused and that it gives you a perspective. So Jasmine was for, I worked, um, full time in the lab, uh, doing ERPs, wound up being the lab manager after graduating, um, for a few years before going to grad school. So Jasmine was four when I started graduate school and it wasn't the case that I could be like, I need to put everything on hold and get my PhD. And f- I did five years <laughs> for that reason. Um, uh, and I'll be back to you when you're nine, okay? You know, it's like you can't do that. And it also focuses you to to remember this is a job, and you're and you're getting trained. And my passion sort of still let me believe that I couldn't. Be- I mean, the fact that there's no one in um, my family who even has a college degree. I mean, I could not believe that they were paying me to learn to TA and things like that. But I, you know, I had to keep it really focused. And when I talked to my graduate advisor on the phone, my um, interview, uh, she said, what am I going to tell people about your grades? And because my grades were basically, I would say my GREs were like 99th percentile and my grades were like, I want to say like a three Oh or a three five, like whatever the minimum to get into graduate school was, I had that if you included all my accelerated pre-med classes. And I told her, you know, I, cause I, maybe there was something in my letter about being a single mom. It was important to me that whoever admitted me understood that this was my life. And if that was seen as a negative, I was like, what's well, not going to work. And I said, you know, since my grades don't, um, aren't indicative of what I can do since having my child, you can see that my grades are all like, you know, high threes and fours. And, you know, I took graduate classes. I challenged myself. But the truth is that sort of if I didn't have a child, I think in a lot of ways I could have equally uh, wound up as a bartender in Club Med or something. Like it really sort of focused me to be the best version of myself so I could be something that she would be proud of and so that she would have opportunities. Um, But that sort of idea of having a best friend is completely true. I mean, we grew up together and, you know, she just got her master's degree in environmental toxicology and she's going to Washington DC to do a public a science communication, public policy fellowship, and she's trying to save the planet. So I feel like, um, we absolutely did it together. And I think I, I, I truly see her as something that was a benefit to me, a motivating factor, like you said, made me be hyper-focused, but also gave me a lot of perspective. Like, I need to play, I need to, you know, connect with my kid, and I need to study, but those things are, like, bubbles. Like, I can't do, I can't, like, let this endeavor take over 
my everyday functioning. 10. Being a good grad student is not the same thing as being a good professor. Nancy Canwisher is one of the most influential neuroscientists of her generation. She's a professor at MIT. But back when she was doing her PhD, there was a two-year period where she wanted to drop out just about every day. She actually went through with it and dropped out three different times. At one point, she spent a month in Nicaragua in an attempt to become a journalist covering international affairs. Let's just say her path to being a neuroscientist was not one of monotonically increasing success. In the following clip, I'm giving you a bit more backstory that is necessary to motivate the lesson, but it's too good not to share. It was a fun time for the first few years, and then I really hit a wall. Like for several years, um, my experiments just didn't work. I mean, one after another after another, and it went on and on. And it was rough. You know, at first, it's like the first few experiments bomb, and you're like, okay, whatever. I was pretty resilient. But this went on for a long time. And, you know, I can remember doing all these experiments on semantic priming. And in in the literature at the time, if you looked at a semantic priming effect, like how much faster can you do a lexical decision on the word doctor if it follows the word nurse than if it follows the word house, right? And in the literature, those semantic priming effects were all, you know, 60 milliseconds or more. Well, in my hands, they were like, you know, 14 milliseconds. And so I felt like an absolute loser and I got more and more discouraged. And in hindsight, you know, if you do it right, they're more like 14 milliseconds than like 60 milliseconds. If you build in confounds and do all kinds of other things, you can get bigger effects. But, you know, they're tiny. And one of the, one of the things I took away from that, I mean, not consciously at the time, but I'm sure it affected me is just an aversion for tiny effect sizes. I just hate them. They just drive you crazy. They come and they go and you're never fully confident of them. And um, I like big effect sizes. (laughs) Um, So anyway, so I did that for a few years and I, I got pretty dispirited. In fact, I got very dispirited. I went home and cried almost every day for about two years because I just felt like this is not happening. And I can remember like at least three times I told Molly that like the verdict was in, I sucked as a scientist. It wasn't happening. And I was going to drop out and drop out and do other things. And she didn't let me, she just didn't let me. And she went to extreme lengths. I remember one time she said, okay, who do you see as a really amazingly brilliant, successful scientist? And I just, you know, offered up the kind of at the time, very obvious suggestion of, okay, Hubel and Weasel. And she says, okay, let's pick apart what those guys did. They figured out how to get an electrode next to a neuron and get some spikes. And then they just put all kinds of different stuff in front of the cat and recorded the responses. Big deal. And, you know, it was a really funny approach to kind of encourage me by saying the stuff that looks so amazing and out of reach wasn't all that fancy and amazing. Anyway, it was great. It was, you know, it encouraged me and it was just cool that you would take the time to come up with stuff like that to re-encourage me. But it didn't stop me from trying other things. I did. I dropped out of grad school three times um, to go be a journalist. I was, um, when my experiments weren't working, I took to reading the New York Times cover to cover, and I got more and more outraged about the horrible things the United States was doing at the time with you know, buildup of nuclear weapons and the you know, horrible support for really nasty wars that were going on in Central America. And so that became more and more of an obsession. 
I think in part because my experiments weren't working. And so I was thinking about other things. And uh, I went, I did, I took, at one point I, I, I just phoned up this journalist who was writing for the Boston Globe, uh, Boston Globe, Pamela Constable, I think was her name. And she was traveling with the Salvadoran guerrillas, writing these incredible stories, like right there as, you know, nuns are getting massacred and all that horrible stuff that happened in the early 80s. And I just called her up one day and I said, okay, how did you get to do what you do? And she said, I wrote about fires for about five years before I got to do anything interesting. And I thought, oh my God, that's like, that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty big entry cost. And so I just decided, well, rather than try that for five years and figure out if that would be, you know, something I'd like to do, I'll just fly to Managua and try it. So, so I flew to Nicaragua at the peak of the Contra War. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. My Spanish sucked. I, mean, I didn't really speak Spanish. I like knew a few hundred words. And I spent a month there going around um, interviewing like everyone. I can remember like going to, um, you know, I remember standing just like, you know, 30 feet from Daniel Ortega, who was a big hero at the time. Whoops, not so much anymore. But anyway, it was um, it was pretty damn exciting. I remember hanging out at the at the poolside at the Intercontinental Hotel in Managua, and me and a bunch of other lefty journalists were hanging out by the side of the pool, and these horrible guys who were running the Contra War out of Honduras used to hang out at the pool, and so we would flirt with them and we would learn all this stuff. It was just it was anyway. It was totally it was pretty exciting. Um, and pretty interesting and felt pretty important as well as exciting. And, uh, and so it took me a while to get over my, um, my parallel desire to give up science and go be a journalist. That's just, that's, that's incredible. Um, so is it, yeah. So, um, is it actually, I got to tell you one more piece of that story. This is a totally ludicrous piece of that story. So how come I didn't end up being a journalist? Well, one very big part of it is my life partner, John Rubin, who I was in grad school with. And in contrast to me, he was doing computational vision. He started off working with David Marr. And in computational vision, you know, you can just make stuff up. You don't, the data don't need to work out. And so he was like exerting very little effort and the papers were flowing. He was Mr. Success Story, Mr. Golden Boy. And here I am like doing these painstaking experiments and they're bombing and like the whole thing was very irritating. Anyway. So at the end of grad school, I thought, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hang on by my fingernails and get the damn PhD. And then my strategy was I was going to apply for this fellowship that's run by AAAS to get uh, recent science PhDs into journalism. And I thought, okay, that will be my segue. I'll do science journalism for a while, and then I'll switch to real journalism, like political journalism. Um, and I made the mistake of telling John about it. Whereupon the two of us finish our PhDs and go traveling around the world for months and months. And I can remember we've been hiking in Nepal for like two months. We, this is, there's like barely email then. Um, we, we get out of there and we fly to, we were changing planes in the Singapore airport. And I can remember we were phoning home from pay phones next to each other. And at the time, like there had been no email. My parents didn't know we were alive. I mean, you know, so it was kind of a big deal to call home. And my mom had collected all the relevant mail, and I knew that the uh, response about this fellowship would be in. 
So I'm talking to her on the phone. It's like, yeah, mom, open the envelope. You know, we did everything like a telegram because it was so expensive, like a phone call. And I didn't get the fellowship. And I get off the phone and John is on the next phone and he got the fellowship and I didn't. So he makes movies and I'm a scientist. <laughs> At the time, I was furious, but it worked out okay for both of us. Number nine, everyone has a CV of failures, but they only show you the one with the successes. Brad Wojtek is a professor of cognitive science at UC San Diego. He's widely considered an awesome mentor. He's written a book on the neuroscience of zombies, and he was Uber's first data scientist back before that was like a thing. But a while back, he also gained notoriety for publishing a CV of failures on his website. Then lots of other people started doing their own as well. It began a conversation in the academic community about how we compare our everyday experience with other people's highlight reel. Contextualizing our own failures, as well as those of the people we look up to, can be a powerful force for overcoming the inevitable struggles of the academic path. A few years back, you published a CV of failures, though I don't <laughs> think inconveniences uh, sort of made, made the list. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested. That got a lot of press. Were you surprised by all the attention that it got? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh... I was because like, so that started with, um, uh, uh, I remember how hard every bit of my path, uh, in, in my career has been. Um, but, uh, it's very easy to forget some of those hardships, right? Like I, I personally, uh, tend to have a optimistic outlook and a little bit of like rose tinted glasses, um, but I remember as a first year graduate student feeling definitely out of place, like knowing for sure as a first year graduate student at UC Berkeley that, uh, I was the absolute worst student in my cohort. <laughs> like, uh, I know for sure that, uh, I, I had the lowest GPA that I was the worst undergraduate, uh, that, you know, I was the one that they, like the, 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 the program was taking a chance on, Right. And I remember looking around at postdocs uh, and senior graduate students who I thought were awesome, were super friendly, were brilliant scientists, and looking at their CVs, uh, especially the postdocs that were going on the job market and just going like, oh my God, I, I, that is an impossibility for me. I can never get there. Um, like that, I cannot, I look at their CVs and I see all these amazing, brilliant papers that I read the papers and they're so well done. The science is so good and thoughtful. And I'm struggling even on like trying to figure out what questions I want to study and how to like design an experiment in E prime or whatever, like, you know, uh, uh, the experimental design software there was at the time, uh, like struggling with like how to write code in MATLAB, all of these like very basic fundamental things. And just thinking it was an impossible, like impossible target for me. Um, and as a first year graduate student, basically giving up on an academic career before my career had even started, right? Like just talking myself out of the, 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 the possibility of me even getting to do it. Um, and then a couple years later, I started teaching neuroanatomy at Berkeley, uh, with a few friends of mine, uh, and my friend Aubrey Gilbert, who after her PhD went on to do, uh, medical school, uh, and get her MD. Uh, she taught this, uh, neuroanatomy class, uh, lab, uh, with professor Marion Diamond. 
and I started teaching that lab with her. And uh, Aubrey Gilbert used to do these uh, uh, talks called Field Dead Brains at Berkeley for the Undergraduate Cognitive Science Student Association, where she'd bring in the brain brains uh, from the neuroanatomy lab and uh, like do little brain dissections in front of the undergraduates uh, and let the undergraduates actually like hold a human brain in their hands. Um, and when she graduated, she sort of passed the torch on to me. And, uh, you know, I did a couple of those lectures from the Cogsci Student Association and uh, got to know some of the undergrads in that. And, and they would invite me to give talks about my research. And suddenly, as like a fourth year graduate student, I'm doing these events and the undergrads are like, you know, how do you how do you do it? Like, I don't understand, uh, you know, how are you so successful or something like that? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, and it dawned on me that like that thing as a first year graduate student that like seemed an impossible target for me, uh, like to be publishing and doing cool science and knowing all of these like amazingly detailed facts about the brain that I felt like I could never memorize and remember. Uh, you know, four years later, I was a little bit on the other side of that. And undergraduates were asking me, how do you do it? And that's when I came to this sort of realization that like, you know, behind every success is just a like long swath of failure <laughs> um, and frustration and self-doubt and uncertainty and so on. And uh, uh, there was an article that was um, written uh, in Nature a couple uh, a couple of years ago. It was like a little like featurette. It was like not even it was like a Nature news piece about um, uh, writing a CV of failures. Um, and, uh, it was like something I came across. I don't even remember what it was. And somebody said it to me, uh, cause they're like, Hey, this sounds like the stuff that you've been talking about. And that's when I decided I would formally include a section at the end of my CV about like every grant I didn't get every paper that, uh, didn't get published or that did eventually get published. How many times it got rejected, uh, you know, not getting into grad schools, not getting, uh, you know, job interviews, not, not X, Y, and Z, um, and honestly, keeping track of that kind of stuff feels like a little bit of a win then. Like you, you put it down in your CV and you're like, well, okay, I didn't get this one, but uh, it's another line on my CV. Like it, it, it's evidence that I was trying, right? <laughs> right? Uh, as long as you can keep a positive mindset and that, not let the failures beat you down uh, and take them personally, which is hard to do. Uh, I'm still bad at it. I still get angry and I still have these moments of, frustration and sometimes self-doubt. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's good to look back at, at these, uh, uh, failures sometimes as moments of forward motion. Number eight, write for an audience of smart, interested undergrads. Anyone older than that is too set in their ways to truly be shaped by your work. Oh, and write from an outline. Michael Tomasello is one of my favorite ever cognitive scientists. For anyone who has listened to some of my previous episodes, you'll have heard his name invoked whenever there's a discussion of the cognitive science of language. If you haven't read his books, I highly recommend them from the perspective of excellent scientific writing. To me, he's the most clear and most direct and most interesting writer of technical exposition I've ever come across. In my interview, I asked him a lot about his writing. He said two things that stuck with me. One was about writing for young people. The other was about writing from an outline. So I want to talk maybe uh, a little bit more about constructing a language. So yeah. my sort of first question on that is sort of for the process of writing. Did you have a 
um, sort of structured way that you did the writing of that? Uh, or did you find it just came naturally and you just sort of hunkered down and, and busted it out? What did that sort of process look like for you? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't call this process of writing natural. It's not natural. It's effortful. Yeah. Uh, but, um, um, uh, you know, I'm big on outlines. And so I, I think one of the keys to writing, you know, one key is know your audience. That's in some ways number one. What are you trying to, you know, you have to have something you want to say. So you have to have an argument. And I had that this in that in that book, Constructing a Language, it was against Chomsky. And so that was that was that always makes it easier if you have a clear target. Um, and um, and second, who's your audience? And I was everything I write, I tend to write for young people. I, I have I have young people in mind because um uh, established scholars aren't going to change their mind. So, um, you know, let's go for the people who still have some flexibility. Um, and, um, and then I'm big on outlines. Uh, so, uh, I think you have to sort of know where you are in your argument at all times. And so you have to have the argument, um, sketched out somewhere. And that doesn't mean that you slavishly stick to your outlines and that you, you um, you know you know exactly what you're going to do before you do it, but if you change, then you change the outline. You write a new outline, and then you go with a new outline. But you always have an outline, even if you're modifying them continuously, which I generally am. I'm generally sort of modifying them as I write, and then I and I have a big outline for the whole thing in terms of the chapters and stuff. And again, that may change. And then when I'm writing a chapter, I have an outline for the chapter, and then when I have a section in the chapter, I have an outline for the section. So. I think that um, the, the, one of the major um, uh, difficulties in in writing well is uh, knowing what to put in and what to leave out, and that is determined by your under your knowing what argument you're trying to make and is it relevant to that argument or not. So when I'm writing, I always have a separate file called extras. And the extras is often as long as the manuscript by the time I finish. And it's all the stuff that I deleted, but I couldn't bear to just delete it and see it go into nowhere. So I put it in the extras file, and I probably never look at it again. But (laughs) it's comforting to know that it didn't disappear totally. But anyway, so you got to get rid of stuff. The delete key is your friend, and um, it doesn't fit. It's an interesting idea, you know, but it doesn't fit. So that's where outlines help, is keeping you on on track. Number seven, listening is one of the most undervalued skills in academia and probably beyond. If you can master that, it'll take you far. Susan Goldenmeadow is a researcher worthy of her last name. She holds an endowed professorship in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago. In 2021, she won the highest honor in cognitive science, the Rommel Hart Prize. Her research focuses on gesture and what it can tell us about the mind. We talked in late 2020 about her path, and in particular, she said something that has resonated with me ever since. It's something, once you start to look for it, you realize is in drastically short supply, both in academia and in our world. It's listening. Really, truly listening. I'm curious to hear, what is the most common advice that you find yourself giving to students, and how do you start to help them think about finding a handhold on one of these big topics that's both something they can they can dig into during their graduate studies, but also will open up into uh, a fruitful career long, you know, the topic of interest. Something that they want to really study. Yeah, I think what I try to do is um, 
get people involved in research, maybe more than one topic, and then listen to them when they talk about it. Because um, I think when you get involved in it, you can tell whether or not you like this way. There are many different kind of ways of doing research. This observational work is great, but it's not for everybody. It requires a certain amount of patience and perseverance and ability to sit down and code all of this stuff. It's sort of boring in its own way, different from constructing studies, which some of my students, students do as well. So they're different skills. So you can try both of these things and see which one really appeals to you and what you're good at and what you want to continue doing. So I try to listen to what they, how they react to the studies that they're involved in and figure out what they're finding interesting in it. So for me, looking at data, looking at the world really does inform me about what's interesting. There are other ways of doing it. You start theoretically and go down from there. But I'm much more of a phenomenon person. You know, I, I one of the things I did learn from Piaget is that the importance of looking at the world. He was probably the best observer there was. I mean, he's he was great at looking at what everybody else looks at and seeing what's interesting about it. Um, conservation, you know, the fact that kids will say this amount is no, not the same as this amount when you pour it, pour the glass in. Nobody, I mean, kids have been doing that for years. Nobody could figure out, you know, why that was interesting. And he figured out why it was interesting. Uh, he just knew what to look at, but he didn't notice gesture. Thank God too. Otherwise, really? uh, I guess so. Right. <laughs> um, if, you know, in all that time, by Piaget, Yes. <laughs> you know, in his conservation studies, the, the way we discovered gestures and hearing kids is we, I would show all these conservation tapes to my classes. And eventually I'd really started looking and noticing that they were gesturing a lot. You almost can't talk about conservation because it's such a hard concept without gesturing. And so the kids are using their hands all the time. And then we decided that it was time to study that and to go about trying to figure out how to code it. So I'm interested, you mentioned listening a couple times. That seems, that seems like a hard thing to do, especially because faculty are under so much pressure nowadays, not, even, not just graduate students. Yeah. And they have their own agenda. And also, you know, they, they're faculty. They, they know things and uh, they know the best way to do things. And uh, so it's easy to sort of get maybe a little bit stuck in that, a little bit complacent in that mindset. Is there any way right. to give an example of, of, of one time that that, you know, something clicked that you can think of with, an, with a student or uh, any other ways that you approach that? Is there anything that comes to mind like that? Well, I'm dealing, I don't know if this is a good example or not, but right now I have a student who actually is deaf. Um, and she's been doing, she's been doing sort of two branches of a project one where it's much more experimental and we, we are designing studies that we give to deaf kids um, and to see, we're really interested in sort of where sign stops and gesture begins in a signer, particularly as kids acquire. But we, she's also been looking at just naturalistic data. Um, and what's so interesting to me right now is I've been watching her and, 
And she started with this, with the experimental. And now she's moving over to the observational. I think she's in the end going to do her, her study there. And she's been doing both together. And we were thinking, oh, we'll just make one dissertation over both of them. But it's hard, actually, to combine those two together. And what she's decided to do with, I, I'm a little surprised that she's going in this direction. You know, I think it's great because she, that's what she's interested in. That's where she wants to go. I mean, you don't want people to do something that they're not interested in. Hey, Cody here. I'll make this quick. The number one way you can support my work, both podcasting and writing, is to subscribe to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. The number of free subscribers I have on there is the single biggest metric I look at to track my own growth, and that also helps me to get more opportunities the more people I have on there and better guests. So if you appreciate this work, please consider subscribing there. It means a ton. And also, if you get a paid subscription, I also really appreciate that. That is something going to be ramping up in the new year. Either way, thank you so much for listening. And now, back to the show. Number six, even the most successful scholars were uncertain early on. Steve Pinker is an eminent cognitive scientist and author. He's written many best-selling books and is a professor of psychology at Harvard. In terms of books sold and papers cited, he's pretty much at the top of the cognitive science heap. But when he was starting off, he wasn't sure it was all going to work out. He wasn't sure he was going to get a faculty job. And when he moved from Canada to Cambridge, people thought he wasn't smart enough. Say what you will about the guy. If even he can doubt himself, you know it's the kind of thing that can happen to anyone. So while you were sort of sorting through a lot of that stuff, were there any sort of big sources of, of personal uncertainty during your graduate work or even times where you thought about, oh, this might not work out for me? Was there anything like that that came up for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing is, as I mentioned, uh, the, the uncertainty about the job prospects of a, a PhD are, are nothing new. This was the uh, era of the um, kind of the, the great bust after the post-Sputnik boom. So in the 1960s and early 1970s, the departments have kind of uh, clogged up with young tenure-track faculty who were hired in the wake of the uh, Sputnik panic. Uh, then there was a, a great recession. There was also an economic, uh, several economic recessions because of the uh, oil shocks of 1973 and 1979, uh, and um, stories in the New York Times about PhDs who had were uh, got jobs driving taxis or working as an assistant to a sheriff. Uh, my, my parents discouraged me from uh, pursuing a PhD. They, they said, why don't you just become a psychiatrist? Uh, that way you can do everything that a PhD in psychology can do, plus your guaranteed employment, uh, which wasn't a bad argument, but I, I did uh, go, go my own way, figuring that uh, if I was unemployed at the age of 25, I could always apply to medical school then. So there was that source of anxiety. Uh, there was a second source of anxiety coming from the fact that I had gone from an undergraduate uh, program in cognitive psychology, where I worked uh, quite satisfyingly with um, Al Bregman, who I'm, I'm still in touch with, who, who had a, a lab that studied uh, auditory scene analysis. But then when I uh, went to Harvard and it was um, uh, mathematical psychophysics, uh, I was made to feel uh, kind of like that cognitive psychology was it's kind of soft and squishy by their standards. Um, that it was uh, 
my my advisors, uh, my teachers, David Green and Duncan Luce, uh, kind of had the, the mindset. It's still it's still present in in large parts of experimental psychology that unless you're doing mathematical modeling, you might as well be doing social work. So uh, you know, and it's not that I it's not that I, I disliked or or was was uh, intimidated by math by any means. I, I, uh, I I'm good at math, and I, I took math courses as a as a, an undergraduate, but not at their level. And it was not the kind of um, theorizing, kind of fit, basically fitting curves to uh, data uh, that, that really appealed to me. Uh, so I had a, um, a kind of a, a crisis of, of confidence as to whether uh, I, I was up to snuff because I, I wasn't doing mathematical modeling myself. Uh, and I was interested in Mental representations, not not just not fitting data. Um, fortunately, um, mathematical psychology was kind of in contraction, if I can uh, pass judgment, and cognitive psychology was expanding. It was embracing cognitive. It was expanding to cognitive science, uh, encompassing artificial intelligence and linguistics and philosophy of mind. The uh, Sloan Foundation. Uh, with uh, its, its money from uh, General Motors a century before, had decided to embark on a program of funding of uh, cognitive science, this new field. They set up cognitive science centers, they endowed uh, faculty lines, and uh, fortunately, uh, I, I, had, I had bet on a, on a good horse, despite fears that I was uh, going into this squishy area by, by the standards of the mathematicians. Five. Some of the most influential papers of all time were rejected in their first submission. Rework and resubmit. Mark Granovetter is a sociologist at Stanford. He is the author of the number one and number three most influential social science papers of all time. His paper on the strength of weak ties went on to define an entire era of social scientific research. But that paper was initially rejected. So I want to talk about that fact a little bit, that the most cited paper in sociology was rejected on first glance. And I believe it, was, it, was, it wasn't for another four years until it was published. So what, looking back on that, what, what, I mean, that, that fact is totally insane. So what, what, I mean, what do you make of, of, of that? Well, I can tell you, first of all, the original title of the paper was not The Strength of Weak Ties. It was Alienation Reconsidered, and the subtitle was The Strength of Weak Ties. Uh, and the reason it was called Alienation Reconsidered is that I was reacting to a long line of urban scholars, scholars of, of urban life, who argued that people who lived in big cities were alienated, and the reason they're alienated is because they didn't have strong ties, they only had weak ties. And, having all these weak times was an alienating, alienating experience. So, I mean, by the time I wrote, there were lots of community studies that showed that people in, in urban areas had actually did have lots of strong ties. And so they probably weren't alienated, but I also wanted to show, I, I was getting the, I had the feeling from all the things I knew about how valuable weak ties were, that it was not, an alienating experience to have those ties. On the contrary, it connected you to resources that were really critical. And so I framed the first version of that paper as a refutation of this alienation idea. Uh, and as you probably know, when you send a paper to a journal, 
the editors don't really read it. They read the title, maybe they read the abstract, and then they send it out to people based on that. And in this case, they sent it out to, I would guess, I never found out who the reviewers were, but I would guess that they were either European or European-oriented alienation theorists who thought that the way you should talk about alienation was the way Marx talked about alienation. They could see that that wasn't the way I had talked about it. Uh, and it didn't occur to them that there was another way you could talk about it that was equally valid. And so they, they really hated it. And so when I got these crushing reviews back, which, by the way, I have saved, and I circulate to my graduate students so they see that even papers that eventually people think are pretty good might get savaged on the first, first round. Um, and when I finally resubmitted it, I stripped all that alienation stuff out of there and out of the title, out of the content of the paper, and just submitted it as a straight argument about social networks. And in that form, it got it got a much better reception and was published in 1973. It was it took four years because I took a while before I felt up to really revising it and putting it back out there. Number four. For some researchers, the best part of their career will be their PhD and postdoc because they want to get their hands dirty with the work. For some, they just need to survive that phase until they get a faculty job because what they really want to do is run a lab. Weiji Ma is a professor of psychology at NYU. He's been a big proponent of talking about scientific stories. Because of this, he was one of the first people I reached out to when I started a podcast exploring the personal side of the intellectual journey. Weiji experienced a lot of academic success very early on. He finished his PhD in theoretical physics in his early 20s. Then through the rest of that decade, he really struggled through a couple different postdocs. He had trouble focusing. He couldn't get traction on his research. But he stuck with it until he got his own shot as a PI. For him, that was a totally different and much more enjoyable experience of the scientific enterprise. But then there's this other thing here where you talk about how much better suited you are to being a PI than a postdoc or a grad student because now you are the manager. Yeah. So how do you make sense of early on in your career, you are so basically just deterministically dependent on the person who was above you. And then once you were the top node, then... It it, it it like it all kind of worked out. So what what do you make of that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah. So many people say that being a postdoc is sort of the best stage of their career because uh, they're more independent than a grad student, but uh, still don't have the uh, responsibilities of a PI. And even when I was a postdoc, I didn't feel that way. I already could see that if I if I managed to make it to PI level, then I would be much happier because I could set the agenda. And I think this appeals to my organizational or managerial managerial tendencies. Yeah. Uh, I just like to have my fingers in many pots and uh, manage people and um, make sure that they succeed. And uh, I, I think when I when it came to that point, um, uh, those were factors that really motivated me to to do good work. Um, and uh, I, I didn't really um, have any more that somebody was telling me what to do. And then I, I had found way, I had to find ways to escape from that. Number three, you don't need a grand plan. Make the best decision you can at every juncture and you'll get somewhere worth going. Linda B. Smith is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Indiana University. She is also a Rebel Heart Prize winner. I just love this piece of advice she gives. 
Here I am talking about finding magic moments and architecting a big picture. How do you find this amazing, much sought after path? Her answer, make the best local decision. I'm very fascinated in those sort of magic moments in general uh, where you don't expect something, uh, but it turns out to be one of the most, you know, sort of significant pathway to finding events of your life or career. Is there anything else that stands out to you on that level of just, wow, it fell into my lap and I, uh, you know, had no idea that it turned into be such a, an, an important thing? Well, I don't know that I can think of something right off the hand might yeah. come to me. I will tell you that the advice I give everybody, my children, my graduate students, my uh, colleagues, my young colleagues, uh, my postdoc, just make the best local decision, okay? And throughout my career, I've done that. I'm not a ruminator or a warrior. I don't, you know, I just, wherever I am right now, I try to make the best local decision, and then you go forward, okay? And then the next point, you make the best local decision. And so I think my whole career is literally just the best local decision. Um, no great wisdom there, although I actually believe that systems that do that end up pretty smart. Number two. You can be a traditional academic, or you can be an entrepreneur of knowledge. Wade Davis is a cultural anthropologist, ethnobotanist, author, and photographer. He's probably the closest thing we have to a real-life Indiana Jones. His career has been full of adventure. And yet, he's always remained committed to following his intellectual passions without compromise. He is anything but a traditional academic. He is an entrepreneur of knowledge. Maybe kind of a reframing of some of the stuff that you've thought, but my, my question is, which came first, an interest in academics or an interest in exploration? You know, I, th I think, Cody, one of the biggest um, lies, frankly, that is perpetrated by our educational system is a notion that life is linear, that you go from A to B, and if you skip C and D, you never get to the rest of the alphabet. And of course, anyone who's lived an interesting life knows that it's made up of these serendipitous moments where you're just given a choice. And what you want to cultivate in yourself as a young person is that, as Joseph Campbell famously said, that inner compass. So you're not listening to the voices of either your peers, your parents, or the society itself as you make those choices. Now, you may not always make the right one, but the critical thing is to own the choice because the greatest creative challenge of anyone is to be the architect of their life. And invariably, in old age, bitterness comes to those who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them, whereas contentment comes to those who have actually been the creators of their own lives. And it takes time, you know, it takes time to envision something that by definition has never existed before. And that is a full dimensions of a, of a kind of inspired and, and um, a creative life. So one of my messages to all young people is, is never compromise um, and be patient. Give your destiny time to find you. Another misconception laid upon graduate students is that you're going to get your PhD and become a professor. Well, that might have been true in the 1950s or 1960s, but at a place like UBC, where I'm on the faculty, uh, upwards of 70% of successful PhDs don't enter the academic world. So the question we have to be asking ourselves, we never do, is what are we doing for that majority, right? You know, how are we giving them the skill sets will, that will allow them to monetize that knowledge in a meaningful way? How do we make them entrepreneurs of knowledge? And everything that I was able to do to, um, you know, be an independent scholar 
uh, public speaking, popular books, films, documentaries, consulting, a whole range of things, photography, all of those skills I began to cultivate in graduate school because Professor Schultes did not see those as distractions, but as compliments to my core academic mission. Number one, someone says you can't do it? Fuck them. There's no one path to success. Mazarin Banaji is one of the most influential social psychologists of all time. She is a professor of psychology at Harvard and the progenitor of the Implicit Association Task. She grew up in a Farsi community in India. She pieced together a career from that remote locale to the pinnacle of her discipline. She was motivated by a love of the subject. She experienced some successes and some failures. She got lucky. She also made her own luck. Her story is beautiful. This is a short segment of it. Listen to it, then don't ever let anyone else tell you you can't accomplish whatever it is you want to accomplish. And two things came together. Uh, I was going home from uh, Delhi to uh, my my family. This is a 1,200-mile um, trip, and you did it on a train, and it took three days at the time to, to get home on a train, uh, or at least two nights. Um, and Indian the Indian railway system is fascinating uh, because everybody at the time, there was nothing like taking an airplane. I mean, maybe some incredibly few wealthy, wealthy people uh, flew by air, but everybody took the train and trains had uh, classes, you know, there was the third class in which you just got a seat and a second class where you got a berth and a first class where you would get air conditioning or whatever. And so kids like me always traveled in third class. And for, you know, less than $5, you could make this trip, uh, which was an amazing deal, subsidized, obviously, by the government. Um, but train stations were full of life because, you know, you would be on it for days. And so when you got to a major junction, uh, you got off the train and the platform was a whole market. Um, and there were people selling all kinds of things, food and, and so on. And it would be very active because they would know that you'd be there only for a half hour or 15 minutes or whatever the stop was. So there'd be all this bothering going on <laughs> very rapidly. And I ended up um, in a shop um, that was a bookstore and um, I noticed, because I was interested in psychology, uh, that there were these fat books that said the handbook of social psychology. And there were five of them. And I thought they were copies of each other, but they were not. It was a five volume set. It was the 1968 handbook of social psychology by um, um, edited by uh, Lindsay and Aronson, um, Elliot Aronson being uh, the Aronson. And I remember, you know, even though my my Hindi isn't as fluent as it should be, the one thing I can do in Hindi really well is bargain, <laughs> because that's all, all I've mostly done in Hindi. Is to, and so I tried to bargain this guy down from what was already a very low price. But I said, I remember saying to him, look at how much dust there is on these books. <laughs> you know, you're not going to sell them. And so he basically let me take them for about a dollar a book. And uh, I got on the train thinking, this is crazy. My parents are going to say, we don't have any place in the house for these books. Um, and I read the first chapter by Aronson, which was on the methods of social psychology. And I was just, I mean, mesmerized by this because it seemed like all my psychophysics and wanting to do experiments was still a part of it. But what they were doing experiments on 
was something I could not imagine anybody ever doing an experiment on. And just the idea of doing a study in cognitive dissonance, and I just remember just neurons just, you know, um, flying all over the place when I read a description of Festinger's uh, basic dissonance study in which you make people lie, uh, and then they like the, the thing they did even more um, because they had lied. And I, I, I just I just knew inside of me somehow that I want to do this, but I have no idea where and how. And that's when the second piece of this happened, which is that when I got home to India, I met up with some of my older friends from, from, from that previous college, and they were all finishing their engineering degrees and going off to the U.S. And so I said to them, you know, what does it take? What, what, what do you do if you want to go to the U.S.? Um, and they said, well, you know, for engineers, it's very straightforward. The first person in our class will apply uh, to MIT, the second will apply to Caltech, the third to Stanford, and that's where we'll all go. Uh, and, and I said, but I want to do psychology. And even, like, I don't think in those days the word psychology as a field was uttered much. And so they looked perplexed, but they knew that's what I had been studying. And they said, well, we don't know about psychology, but we've heard a rumor that in the U.S., there are schools with the word state in it. And if the school has the word state in its name, they apparently take anybody. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. So I went to the library, pulled out a book called, you know, American Universities. And I started to flip the pages. And every time I would come to a page with the word state in the name of the school, I would write down the address of the admissions office. And then I wrote, I think, like 30 aerograms <laughs> letters that, um, and asked for the admission material from Michigan State and Kansas State and Iowa State and Ohio State and so on, and applied, not knowing a thing and not realizing that, you know, if you get decent GRE scores, you'll get into a lot of places. And I did. And I chose Ohio State because of us, again, such a simple thing that should have had no bearing on my choice. And this, I want to tell young people that, you know, these accidents are just things to assume. So Tom Ostrom, who was a professor at Ohio State, instead of just sending me a formal letter, he had stuck the college newspaper from that day in the packet. And on it, he had scribbled, I hope you will join us in the fall. That did it. I thought, yeah, it's obvious where I should go. It's a school with the word state in it. They obviously will take anybody, and uh, and then they're being even nice to me. So that's where I'm going to go. Not realizing that it wasn't the greatest university in the world, but it had the world's most amazing social psychology group. And this is another point that I want to make. There I was in a school with the word state in it, but my teachers were from Yale and Harvard. Um, so just think about uh, all of this, that while it seems improbable that a person a girl who almost didn't finish seventh grade um, ends up ends up here. But also think about all the amazing advantages of that mother pushing her to not drop out of a father who gave her a love of the printed page from a very early age um, of schools in India that, you know, just without, I mean, I really don't have favorite teachers, you know, it was mostly my peers that I learned from. And they were an amazing group of people. Uh, and then at Ohio State, where, you know, I would have flunked out at Harvard, because at Harvard, if I had come there, 
they would have said, what do you want to work on? You know, find a project, do something. In those days, there was no training program. But at Ohio State, there was. And even though it might have been onerous for an American student who already knew a lot, for me, it was heaven. Well, those were my 12 lessons I learned from interviewing 90-plus scientists about the personal side of their intellectual journey. I hope you found some inspiration in their stories. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. You can find the entire feed of my work at TheMeaningLab.com. That's TheMeaningLab.com. Rating and subscribing is the best way to support this work. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab Podcast. Mm-hmm.